Welcome to the Biblical Theology Briefing Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Harmon, joined in virtual studio by my good friend and my longtime ETS roommate now, Ben Glad. Ben, what's going on? Oh, you know, I, there's a, as they say in the South, there's a tornado fixing to get us. And, uh, and so after this, I'm going to have to go home and, and kind of batten down the hatches. I saw Lincoln Duncan posted on Facebook today that only in Mississippi, do you have to secure your exterior Facebook, uh, uh, Christmas decorations for a coming tornado. There really aren't many States in the U S where you have to do both of those things. That's right. So are you a, a big, like, do you go all out on the Christmas decorations? We're talking like a Christmas vacation kind of level of uh, outdoor decorations. I draw the line at the roof. I, <laughs> okay. uh, I tend to do the blow ups. It's a really lazy thing, but I just plug it in. I secure the blow up. It's really easy. I do that with my kids. It's kind of a fun thing. Um, my wife likes to hang. She's a hanger. She likes to hang stuff on doors and wreaths. And so she does that mm-hmm. a couple of years. I would wrap our columns in front of our house. Uh, I haven't done that the last couple. What about you? Yeah, we don't do a ton outside. Um, we've got a little display on our front step there and a, just a couple of bushes there around the entry. But a few years ago, uh, a friend of ours got us this. I don't know if you've seen these, but it looks like a disco globe that you put, like you put it in the grass and it projects up onto your house, like snowflakes or, you know, lights or whatever. So we got one of those to kind of brighten things up. What does it project? Objects? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's got like, I don't know, probably six or eight different patterns that it does, whether it's like snowflakes or like red and green lights or that sort of thing. So it's nothing like, it's not like a scene or anything, but Um, yeah, I have, I think two of my neighbors, they do that with their lights. You know, it's really an amazing thing because this takes you maybe 30 seconds to do that. Oh yeah. Whereas the lights, you know, forever. Three yeah, days. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, well, let's well, mention do you here do real quick on the shelf. Ahead. Let me ask you this. Do you do elf on the shelf? No, we're not an elf on the shelf family. I think that kind of hit, um, kind of after our after boys got, you know, got to a certain age, and so we 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 have not done that. But you, you guys are are also not an elf. No, elf the we don't do family. it. We don't do it. It's just something else to something else to do. Kind of makes the day complicated when you forget. Yeah. Or I'm already tired at night. I'm going to reconfigure this thing. It just seems yeah. like a lot of work. Yeah. So um, last year, Kate and I sort of embraced our old person uh, experience here, and so. A friend of ours gave us these nativity, um, like these Advent puzzles. So there's like these mini puzzles that we do like every day. It takes like, it takes us like, you know, 15 minutes, but these little winter scenes and that sort of stuff. So I have officially moved into old person world (laughs) by embracing that. So, you know, I'm almost 50. So coming up on 50... I tell you what, the day I stop watching Christmas Vacation is the day you put me in the grave. I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm holding on to that one. Yeah, we're we're actually gearing up for a a Christmas movie uh, marathon coming up here, so we're still so- sorting out uh, Christmas vacations on there, obviously. Mm. Um, 
We're going to do, I think we're going to do Die Hard. Do you think Die Hard's a Christmas movie? Oh, yes, of course. Okay, Why wouldn't good. it be? Right, right, obviously. obviously. Uh, and um, Home Alone, maybe Home one. Alone. I don't know if we'll do two. We'll just at least do one. Oh, they're both so good. Yeah, yeah. You got any other go-to Christmas movies? Elf. I do Elf. Yeah. Can you, and okay, a here, new... here, here's a crazy I, fact. I had that? not seen Elf until <gasps> last Christmas. No Last Christmas way. was the first time I'd seen Elf. Yeah. Oh, that's, I don't even know. I don't even, I don't even with that. That's right. Have you seen, we just watched uh, the an 8-Bit Christmas. We saw that on HBO Max. What's it's that? 8-Bit, it's like called 8-Bit no. Christmas. It's really even... good. It's really good. It's rated PG. Okay. It's pretty family friendly, if, if I remember right. Yeah. And uh, we thoroughly enjoyed it, so. Good. I would add that. I would add that one to the list. Yeah. I bet your wife makes some amazing Christmas treats during the holiday season as well. Oh, yeah. I have the arteries of an 80-year-old man. I tell you what, <laughs> I she she go it's it's crazy. She goes all out and it is such a treat. I mean, I you know, it, it's sad because it takes me 11 months to undo what I do in one month. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's like cycle that's right. That's right. Well, that's part of the beauty of the new creation is we'll be able to eat ourselves silly and not be unhealthy about it, right? I and mean, that's just one of yeah, the small side I'm hoping, benefits. I pray for for amazing uh, eschatological metabolism. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, we should probably mention, um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at BTBriefingPod. You can email the show bibtheobriefingpod at gmail.com. And um, just to tease something that's coming up, we are uh, in high-level negotiations to join a podcast network. So uh, we will have more information on that, uh, Lord willing, uh, down the road here. But um, yes, we've entered into some very high-level, detailed negotiations trying to sort out uh, Ben's the lawyers are involved. The lawyers honorarium. are involved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to get legal. The, our legal team involved, and that's not cheap. So, um, yeah, more more news uh, coming on that uh, shortly. But anyway, so Ben, we are uh, releasing this episode in December, and so we thought it would be a good idea to uh, talk about the birth narrative of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, you recently released a book on a theology of the Gospel of Luke, and I'm in the middle of working on a commentary on Luke, so it seemed like a, a good natural fit for us to talk. And hopefully, uh, whether you're a pastor or um, just a layperson or whatever else, um, what we hope to do is as we kind of work through Luke 2 a little bit, is to try to draw out some of the key features, maybe talk about some of the Old Testament background uh, that informs what's going on there. And uh, maybe this will even prove helpful to you if you have the opportunity to preach or teach um, on uh, Luke 2 as part of the uh, Christmas celebration going on. So, um, yeah, uh, and we'll put a link to Ben's book in the show notes again, just to make sure that people see it. We did our previous episode uh, devoted to that book, but uh, since then, it's now out and about. It is in the real world. Ben has held his copies in his hands. I have a copy as well. So that's always an exciting moment when that 
when that box of your own books arrives in the mail and you unseal that? Do you have any special um, kind of uh, rituals that you do or ways you celebrate the arrival of another book that you've written, Ben? Uh, you know, that's a good question. Uh, my favorite part as, as I think most authors is, is when you, when you open the book, because you don't see, I, I, most people don't think about this, but you know, the author has been editing and seeing whether it's in word documents, then it moves from word document into a PDF. And so we can see what they look like virtually and electronically, yeah. but um but we don't get to see with the we don't get to hold the physical copy until a couple of weeks before it's released. When typically a publisher will will send the the copy, the send an, an, a digital copy to a printer, then the printer mm-hmm. prints it and then ships it back to the publisher. Then the publisher distributes it to all the major outlets, your Amazon and those sorts of outlets. And when the publisher ships that out, we then get our own copy at that point. So that's why we get it a couple of weeks early. And uh, for me, that's the most exciting part. I, you know, you pick it up. It feels, it feels odd to be honest. I, and I don't know about you, Matt, but I really don't read it for a couple months or at least I, because every time I do, I see a mistake. I see something that I, <laughs> that's unclear or vague. Yep. It really is heartbreaking. So I, I like to keep the heartbreaking things after a while. <laughs> uh, that's just my thing. I, I, I yeah. it's, it's hard for me to look at a book or at least look closely at a book that I've yeah. done. What about yeah. you? Yeah. Same. Um, th- there's always that, uh, uh, that's when it becomes real in, in the, mm-hmm. when you're actually holding the physical copy uh, in your hands. Um, but, uh, I too am, am pretty hesitant typically to read back through, um, because inevitably you're going to find something where, you know, you, you said something unclear or, you know, you read a sentence and you go, Hmm, do I really think that? Like, (laughs) you know, like, did I really write that? Like, so, you know, there's those uh, sorts of moments, yeah, but, um, yeah. but it is a unique kind of thrill for sure. For sure. So, uh, we'll put a, a link in the show notes so people can go out and find that if they aren't aware of it, but, uh, all right, Ben, let's, uh, let's go ahead and look through Luke chapter two. Um, like I said, we'll take this kind of chunk by chunk. Uh, we'll take the first seven verses here and I'll go ahead and read the text and then, uh, yeah, we'll just kind of have a free-flowing conversation about things that uh, stand out, things that are uh, noteworthy. So uh, I'll be reading out of the ESV translation. So here we go. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. All right, Ben. So out of those first seven verses there, um, what are some of the things that immediately 
catch your attention and you think are especially helpful to point out and to, to highlight there? Yeah, so remember that in Matthew's gospel, Matthew couches the birth narrative through the eyes of Joseph. Here uh, in Luke's narrative, we have the we have the, the the birth narratives through the eyes of the women of Elizabeth and Mary. So we that's a little bit of a different thing. Something else that's different is that in Matthew's gospel, the birth narrative is couched uh, in 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 light of Herod. And his rule, mm-hmm. which is uh, a more of a Jewish, of a, of a course, a Jewish rule, whereas yeah. in this account, it's a Roman rule. Do you see the difference there? And yeah. um, it would be one above. So obviously, Caesar Augustus is way above Herod at this point, and uh, so there's really a huge contrast between Caesar and he's, you know, presumably in his palace. In, in the belly of the beast in the Roman empire there mm-hmm. and his palace and his life in the rule that he executes and being contrasted with Jesus, who was born in a manger, likely in a, in a relative's house in a very poor environment and something very weak and lowly uh, at this point. So, it, so it's very interesting to see how both gospel writers mention the political con the historical political context of Jesus birth and Matthew's mm-hmm. there with a Jewish is more Jewish. And then Luke of course is more Roman here. Is there anything yeah. that you, that you want to mention? Yeah. So I think that uh, the putting it within the context of the Roman empire and not just the sort of Jewish context um is just one more uh, piece of evidence for Luke's universal perspective. And not that Matthew is unconcerned with Jesus um, and his relationship to the Gentiles, but by comparison, Luke is absolutely uh, focused on trying to help us see that uh, Jesus is not just the Jewish Savior. He is the Savior of the world. And uh, we're going to see that emerge. Uh, and I think we even talked about this in our last episode. Uh, when when you get to his genealogy, that's where you see him going all the way back to Adam as the son of God and, and then introducing essentially Jesus as the son of God, the one who was sent to uh, reverse what Adam broke. So I think even setting it in the context of that um, uh, Roman Empire helps highlight that as well as as it sets up this tension, really, of who is the true ruler of the world. Mm -hmm. On the surface, Mm -hmm. you've got Caesar, who is the apparent ruler of the world. And yet, you know, when you look back in chapter one, how you had all these preparations for what kind of child Jesus is going to be, you're already beginning to see this tension emerging between these rival claims to ultimate supremacy in terms of ruling the world. And um, that's part of what I think Luke is trying to do there is set that up even by contextualizing it in the rule of Caesar Augustus. Mm -hmm. That's good too. notice that really, so remember Luke and Acts, it's a, it's a two volume project. They're most likely Mm -hmm. published alongside each other. And, Luke is going to open with, hey, this takes place in the Roman Empire, Caesar, Caesar Augustus. He's the main guy. 
And then how does the book of Acts end? Paul is in the heart of yep. the Roman Empire there in Rome itself. And so, and what is he in it? In fact, Luke even tells us what he's doing there. And he says he's proclaiming the kingdom of God, which is the mm -hmm. true kingdom uh, yeah. in contrast to uh, the kingdom of, of, of man there in, in Rome. So it's this nice, he said, he's really setting up, Luke is setting up this nice trajectory for Jesus. It, the idea then is just, well, how does he get there? How does this happen? And so we're going to see in Luke and in Acts to where the gospel starts, you know, Christ his, his he's going to begin uh, here in, in Bethlehem mm -hmm. and then, but it's going to end all the way in Rome. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think, too, uh, Luke goes out of his way to highlight the Davidic um, connection for Jesus. I mean, he's done this already in chapter one, you know, when he announced to Mary what was going to happen uh, back in chapter one, uh, verse 32. He uh, The angel Gabriel says to Mary, uh, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, uh, of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so clearly tapping into that Second Samuel uh, 7 line of promise that gets developed and expanded as the Old Testament unfolds. Um, and even just highlighting the, you know, he, Luke goes out of his way to note that, um, the city of David. Oh, which by the way is called Bethlehem. It, you know, that's what he leads with. It's the city right, of David. Right. Oh, and by right. the way, that's called Bethlehem. Um, which shows his interest, I think, in highlighting the Davidic um nature of his kingship. And so uh but I also think I, I don't know what you think about this, Ben. I it, it's subtle here. I, I might go back to to Matthew two to unpack this a little bit more, but you know, he mentions that they came from the town of Nazareth. And of course, there's that reference in Matthew 2 about why he ends up settling in Nazareth. He shall be called a Nazarene. And there's all sorts of, you know, that's not a direct quote from the Old Testament. So what is it getting at? And uh, I, don't, I don't know what you think, but uh, I, I think it's getting at the idea of the branch, the Netzer that, uh, you know, was promised in the Old Testament. I think that's mute, more muted here probably, but that's a pretty common name or title, I should say, for the Davidic king, this this branch mm -hmm. or this netzer mm -hmm. that's going to mm -hmm. come. So it's, right. I don't think right. it's flowing incidental. Out of, flowing out of Jeremiah, of course. Yeah, and, and Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 11 and as Isaiah well. And Isaiah 11, and Isaiah, yeah, both Jeremiah and 11 yeah. both, uh, both, both talk about that. Right, don't also forget though that, so Luke is going to do two things here and he does, he sets it up. He sets it elsewhere, but it, it, Jesus is not only David's descendant, but he's also David's Lord, which is yeah. what we get in uh, Luke 20 there when he's debating yep. with the Jewish leaders. So there's a sense in which Luke is trying to argue that Jesus is the son of David. He mm -hmm. is the descendant. He is the heir of, on the throne who will reign 
uh, eternally, but he is also Yahweh in the flesh. He is David's Lord. And so yeah. we can start to see hints of this even in mm-hmm. Luke 1 and 2. And it's going to yep. really, really uh, come to the scene or at least come to the surface there in chapter 20 when it's explicit. Not only is he David's son, he is also David's Lord. And that is a huge point. Yeah, for sure. And that that's a great example of how... Um, Reading the gospel accounts over and over and over again bring out more and more of these connections. I mean, the the combined genius of the Holy Spirit as well as the human author, Luke, in crafting the narrative in a way that has all of these uh, breadcrumbs in there, these hints that at first glance you may not catch the significance of, and then you read back through it after you've read the whole thing. You're like, Oh my goodness, that's anticipating what's going to come later. You know, like you mentioned with Luke one and two, um, you get to Luke 20 and you're like, Oh, well, Luke's been preparing us for this moment. We just maybe haven't fully appreciated it until Jesus, you know, questions the religious leaders about, uh, how can the Messiah be David's son? If David calls him Lord, you know, mm-hmm. working mm-hmm. off of Psalm 110. So, right, right. And remember, John, he's a prophet of the Most High, whereas mm-hmm. Jesus is what the Son of the Most High. And that's right. a, that, that's an important distinction. And we see that early on in Luke 1. Yeah, for sure. Um, you mentioned this in one of your comments. I just want to follow up on this because I'm, I'm pretty sure we're on the same page here. But uh, a lot of English translations there in verse 7 uh, refer to there was no place for them in the inn. But you mentioned in passing that uh, you think that may, that may not be an inn, but maybe uh, a guest room in a, in a house. Is that is Did I catch that right? Yes, you did catch that right. Uh, this is this is a typical Greek word for room. I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. it, 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 this is, this is precisely the word that we find in Luke 21 where Jesus tells, he tells the disciples, he's like, okay, now you're going to go to the owner and you're going to say, the teacher asks, where is, and here it is the guest room. That's the yeah. same word, the guest yeah. room where I may eat the mm-hmm. Passover with my disciples. The same word for guest room in Luke 22 is the same word, that we find for room here in Luke 2. Now, what's interesting, yeah. my sense is that it goes back to the King James. And if there's one thing that you don't mess with, you don't mess with the King James <laughs> in Luke 2, right? <laughs> you know, I grew up, my, I grew up reading from my mom. We would kind of rotate around the family. It was our tradition to read from Luke 2 out of the mm-hmm. King James. And so when yeah. you would read, Luke 2, it says in the King James, and everybody knows this, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them where? In the inn. Yeah. And that is, I I could probably look this up. I'm unsure why they translated the word in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. But you then have newer translations in the last 50 years departing from Luke 2, 7. The ESV sticks with it. They are now in the minority. Uh, If you were to just do a, I mean, I brought up a bunch of translations. So so the NIV, the HCSB, the, the NLT, and of course, well, the the message says because there was no room for them in the hostel. The I, hostel? 
Yeah, in the hostel. I'm surprised they didn't say there was no room in the Airbnb at that point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there was no room in the Airbnb. Yeah, yeah, they actually say hostel. I I, wow. I don't know, but I don't. That could actually be yeah. worse than the King James. Yeah, but well, uh, newer I, translations. I, to, what is that? Is that what you think is going on here? It is, and I think, in addition to the to the uh, observations you made, to me, one of the convincing aspects is is that in Luke ten, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, when it talks about how the Samaritan takes the injured man to an in it's a different word it's a different word mm-hmm. and so to me that's sort of right. a, a confirming piece of information that's like okay whatever he's talking about there in luke 2 7 it's not the same thing as what we have in luke 10 and i think realistically um if you keep the context in mind uh whoever um joseph and mary are staying with they're probably not the only ones staying with that family. Everyone has to come back to their sort of ancestral area. And so you got all of these extended relatives cramming in to these small homes. And I think that's what's uh, being talked about there is that there was no room left for them in the house, in the guest room. And the only area for them to really stay was in like the, 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 the indoor stable area of the house. Because it was common for families to keep animals inside the house at night in a sort of stable area. So that's probably what's being talked about here is that that was the only part of the house that didn't have people already in it when they got there. And so they're already uh, Garland. Garland makes a good point in his commentary. He says that it's likely or at least it's possible that somebody, you know, another relative, another family or another couple was Mm -hmm. already staying at this house and they out and they outrank them. Maybe they, uh, whatever it is, Mary and Joseph, they're, they're getting the scraps of the living quarters. Yeah, for sure. Well, and at first glance, you might think, well, gosh, why wouldn't they give, why wouldn't they defer to the pregnant girl? Right. But if you think about it, they're not married. Yeah. Yeah. That's another layer here. And, and so they're betrothed, but they're not married. And so they're, you know, and let's be honest, you know, whatever, you know, the story that they're telling, no, really, uh, we haven't, we haven't slept together, but she's pregnant. Yeah. It's the spirit. The spirit did it. I did it. Right. Right. Yeah. Not many people are buying that. Yeah. And and so you can understand why like they can't bring themselves to turn the poor woman, you know, the relative away, but they're probably not maybe going to go out of their way to be like, oh, have the nicest part of the house. And we'll, you know, like, no, no, no. So in any case, I think there's a lot of those sort of dynamics going on that, uh, you know, kind of contribute to that. But um Anything else from that section? Or are you ready to move on to the next I'm one? I'm ready to here? move on. That's good. Oh, I, w- I right. will want to say there's yeah. a huge right. historical, there's a pretty big historical problem here. Yes. And yes. I think the ESV gets this one wrong too. I mean, I'm not trying to bash on the ESV. I think it's, they they should have, uh, they I, I'm pretty sure that they inherited it from an, the RSV, which is the predece- predecessor yeah. from the ESV. But this yeah. should be translated. This first census that took place, it should be, before Quirinius was governor of Syria, yes. 
Yeah. Uh, the ESV says while Quirinius and the NIV actually says that while the reason why that's a problem is because he is not reigning until 86, which is roughly 10 yeah. years after Christ is born. And yes. uh, just the word, the word prote uh, should be translated mm -hmm. before, not while. And that, yeah, yeah, I think, I think Luke gets his history correct. In other words. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, definitely on the same page with you there. That's uh, a good catch. Um, all right, Anyways, I'm ready to move on. That's the only thing. Uh, that's a, that's a fairly big historical issue, though. It is. It is. Uh, verse 8. Uh, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So let's stop there. Uh, things that stand out to you from that section. Why do we have all these shepherds here, Matt? What's going on? <laughs> a lot of shepherds. You know, where, where are the magi? Where are the magi? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, it, it is interesting. Uh, you know, shepherds were not uh, typically... The, all that highly regarded as a profession. And um, they're certainly not the kind of people you would expect from a worldly perspective. If you're going to announce the promised king, you're probably not going to expect the first people you go to to be shepherds. That's just not expected, which again is getting into this sort of reversal motif that is all throughout Luke's gospel of, you know, God... Uh, bringing the those who exalt themselves, God bringing them down, and those who are humble, God exalting. So that's just another one of you know dozens of examples of that of that motif for sure. But um, what about you? What do you think in terms of well, the shepherds? Well, here? well, I mean, David is like the shepherd, right? Right. He's the shepherd boy. I think the connections mm -hmm. between shepherding. Yeah, uh, reinforce the thing at shepherding in Bethlehem. I mean, this is precisely yeah. what we get in David. And I would argue that David, his his life is a pattern for mm -hmm. his descendants. So that just yeah. as he was a shepherd, uh, and it was a prophet, priest, and king, that his son therefore mm -hmm. would imitate him. And it just happened to be, oh, he's also a shepherd as well. Right. Uh, so I think we, we you can even draw draw a typology that is a prophetic pattern even in the Old Testament yeah. between David shepherding and uh, the shepherds here that are now involved in um, yeah yeah that's why Jesus calls himself well I am the true shepherd yeah it's one of the reasons why he makes that statement so there's yeah there's obviously strong connections here mm -hmm. between shepherds and David and Jesus they're all kind of brought together here. Yep. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to, uh, I'll just point people to Ezekiel 34, 
which is a fascinating passage here, because uh, first of all, you know Ezekiel is is uh, engaged in prophetic ministry, uh, something like say four hundred ish years after the historical David lived, and so mm-hmm. as he's getting this prophecy of what God's going to do to restore his people, uh, Ezekiel thirty four verse fifteen. This is Yahweh speaking. He says. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring them, uh, bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So Yahweh says, I'm going to be the one who shepherds my people. But then you jump down to verse 23, and Yahweh says this, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I am the Lord I have spoken. So even in Ezekiel 34, you see this dynamic of Yahweh saying, I'm going to shepherd my people, but I'm going to do it through David, my shepherd. Right. So you, you have this sort of both and, which raises the question of well, what's the relationship between Yahweh shepherding his people and David being this shepherd, which, again, sort of is latent there for this um, for the incarnation, for this understanding mm. of Jesus is both Yahweh in the flesh and the Davi- the promised Davidic king, promised Davidic shepherd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is why we get in Zechariah 12, 12 about striking the shepherd, mm-hmm. and which is then applied uh, in the Gospels to Christ, whereas it was applied to Yahweh in Zechariah, then it's applied to, to Christ. So, yeah, we get we certainly get these paradigms uh, woven mm-hmm. into this birth this birth narrative. What I find compelling, though, I. Th- I don't want to say it, the shepherding piece is predictable. I think that's kind of an easy one for Luke. I, that's that's not all that hard for me to explain. What I think is is difficult, uh, Matt. I don't know about you, but it's it's these these angels attending to and announcing uh, really what Jesus is going to do mm-hmm. and how they're described. It's not simply that we have angels, even though yeah. that's difficult enough. Like that is their function, but how they are described in verse 13 says, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel. So apparently it's one angel. And so one angel shows up to the shepherds and then tons and tons of angels appear alongside of or around the shepherds. And they then announced, verse 14, glory to God in the highest heaven on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. But it's this yeah. line here, Matt, in verse 13, where it says it's a a heavenly host. That's how the NIV renders this, a heavenly host. And that language there for host, in English, it's kind of lost. I wonder yeah. what, there are any translations out there. So the NIV says a a heavenly host, a great company of heavenly host. Um, Nasby says a multitude of the heavenly host. Yeah, that's what ESV But the is. word host is no... Oh, this is good. NLT 
out of, I'm looking at like a dozen translations, the NLT rightly says this. The angel was joined via by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven. That's mm. way better in my mind, yes. right? Yeah. It's so the, ex- explain why that's angelic better. army. Yeah, this is an angelic army. The word yes. here for army is found and then paired that with heaven. The only time we get these, this wording is found in a military context. These are the, yeah. this is an angelic, har- uh, an angelic, uh, yeah, I mean, this is the, it's yeah. it's it, it, they're different angels don't not all angels have the same function and there are some sure. angels who their job is to is to fight alongside Yahweh and these mm-hmm. are those angels here yeah so um would you say would you be comfortable with going so far as to say then that probably <laughs> I have Matt, I've never backed off. I am a maximalist. I have never said no, that's yes. you've gone too far. <laughs> well, like like Dr. Vodder, like uh that's right, that's right. uh Dr. uh that's right. Uh, Huyas, right? Uh so that's right. That's right. um but uh to me, this this is the language of invasion. This, this is this is God the Son invading this fallen world with His heavenly army, and so it, it, there's there's obviously irony here in that when you think invasion, you think weapons drawn, you think you know all, all this sort of very vivid military imagery, and it's the birth of a baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's also think, ironic too, Matt, that they're proclaiming peace because you yes. would expect them to say, "All right, we're fixing, we're fixing to kill some people. We're fixing <laughs> to, you know, that's what you think." Yeah. Right? Instead, what do they do? They announce, they announce peace of all things. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and uh, again, notice the, the sort of the universal scope of this proclamation, right? So it's uh, in verse 10, uh, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Mm-hmm. So again, a universal scope. And when you when you remember too that part of the propaganda of the Roman Empire was the proclamation of peace, the Pax Romana, that, that the- Caesar Augustus, right? Verse yes, one, that's his thing, that, Caesar Augustus. That, yeah, he has established- peace. He is the reason that there is peace. And of course, it's a, it's a, it's a false version of peace. You know, what, what's being announced by the angels is the, is the reality that's been perverted and distorted by what uh, Caesar claims he is bringing about. Yeah, that's good. I, I think that's, I think that that's all at play here. Um, Think too about how these are these are preparations for battle and mm-hmm. even though we don't see even though we don't see it in with Jesus in a manger in a in a little dinky house he is a warrior and he is both the messiah he's a human warrior and he's a divine warrior and we see this ministry of warfare begin in just a couple chapters in Luke 4 the first thing that he does after he's anointed with the spirit he goes out to battle and he's doing what he came to do. And so when you start to read yeah. these together, you have, you've got to read Luke four 
in Luke 2 together so you can kind of mm-hmm. see the trajectory of Jesus's ministry. But and this is this is this is what's so ironic is that first century Jews they're looking for a ruler that will take down Caesar Augustus, that will take down the Romans, that will take down mm-hmm. the nations. But that's not the that's not what Jesus is doing. You know, he does take them down indirectly and he will consummately, mm-hmm. but he's taking yeah. down it's he's fighting a holy war uh on a spiritual level, not on a physical level, not not yet. Yeah. And you notice I think even in the titles that uh that the angel gives to Jesus that um that his rule is uncontested in one sense, right? That in other words, not uncontested is the right word. Uh, it's it's not in jeopardy of actually being realistically challenged, right? Mm-hmm. So he's identified as mm-hmm. a savior who is Christ. So there's picking up the Messiah language, uh, mm-hmm. who is Christ the Lord. And so there's this accumulation of titles that give us these different windows into what um what Jesus is doing. And that title savior is interesting because, you know, you get, you get texts in the old Testament, like, um, you know, Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 45 that identifies, uh, Yahweh himself as the savior of his people. Yeah. Isaiah 45, uh, 14 to 25. So, um, you know, highlighting that Jesus is, uh, the savior of God's people. So again, there's these like seeming blurring of categories, right? Where you're like, man, those titles seem to apply to God and yet they're being applied to this mm-hmm. infant child. Mm-hmm. So Luke is sort of preparing you to, to expand out your categories that Jesus is such a unique individual that he goes beyond what um, we might uh, expect just of a sort of human Davidic descendant who's going to rule, uh, reestablish. And as I like to tell my students to, to make Israel great again, right? That, that's, <laughs> you know, that that's not his main purpose there. So also, you know, in that vein, this is, this is classic Luke, classic Luke. Yeah. In two nine, we have two titles here, an angel of the Lord, curios, mm-hmm. an angel, yeah. presumably Yahweh, an angel of Yahweh yeah. appeared to them in the glory of, of the Lord or the glory of Yahweh shown around them. Mm-hmm. And they were there and they were terrified, but the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for the people today. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. Now watch this, the Lord. Yeah. Do you see that? Mm-hmm. So in that same passage, we have the title Lord applied to Jesus and to Yahweh. Yeah. So that if you read it together, this is, you could say, the an angel of Jesus appeared to them, and the glory of Jesus shone around them. This is, you know, yeah. Jesus is identified with Yahweh. So what is true of Yahweh is is Jesus, is true of Jesus. Yeah. So, But Luke is very sophisticated in how he applies divine titles in Yahweh's name to mm-hmm. Jesus. For sure. Let's move on to the last chunk here, verses 15 through 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. 
And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. All right, so the last little section there. Um, Ben, what are some things that immediately jump out to you there? Right, so Matt, you know this, but one of the difficult things about birth narratives, whether it's in Matthew or in Luke, is where did we get this information? Mm -hmm. Because the disciples, maybe they're not even born at this point. They're completely off the scene. How how do we get how do we get this material? Whereas with Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, we can see eyewitness testimony. You know that we have eyewitness accounts, and they can. And so Luke would have uh, consulted these eyewitnesses and used mm-hmm. Mark's gospel, and you know we can make sense of that. But when it comes to the birth narratives, it's it's difficult, at least at some level, it's not super difficult for me, but I think for non-evangelicals, it's difficult Mm -hmm. because where did Luke learn about the birth of Jesus if the disciples are not around? And I think it's staring at us in the face. It's from Mary. Yeah. hundred percent. I don't know why it's weird (laughs) to think, or you have to be this creative genius to think, I know. Mary told it to Luke. Right. (laughs) Or Mary told it to Jesus, and then Jesus told it to Luke or something, you know, know, Mary would have told the disciples, and the disciples would have told Luke or or something along. We know know that Mary was very active Mm -hmm. in the early church, that she would have visited churches. There's, There's a decent chance that she even visited Corinth because we have Paul making reference to her. So we have, uh, we, we, I think, I think we have information here as to where Mm -hmm. the account is from. And I think that's hugely important as evangelicals and as Christians who believe in the trustworthiness of these accounts that we are reading an account that happened to Mary. And we, we think Joseph died because he just kind of drops off, drops off mm-hmm. the scene. So yep. the sense is that we get this from Mary herself and likely even from Elizabeth herself, who probably told Mary or she then told Jesus or she told the disciples. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's why we can uh, believe these texts and that they are precious yeah. to us and that they are um, unsullied. I think by by myths. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I think um Luke probably th- this is my this is my guess that um while Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea for those 3 years, right. I think Luke traveled extensively throughout the land of Israel doing his research, interviewing people, talking with individuals about their encounters with Jesus. And um, I think Mary is uh, the most obvious choice for where this information would have come from. And, you know, it's I think it's even in one sense suggested by verse 19, right? Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So, you know, as you might expect, 
She is reflecting on them. She's delighting in them. And I think part of the reason that Luke describes her this way is that that's the response he thinks we should have, that we should be treasuring these things in our hearts, pondering them ref- on them, reflecting on them, marveling at the realities that Luke is describing in his gospel account in particular. Mm-hmm. So I think in one sense, she's sort of a model of the kind of response that Luke wants his readers to have. Right. In this also, there's a there's a, dis, a dissertation out there written by a Wheaton grad, and he uses the notion, I, I believe this is what he argues. If he doesn't, he should have argued it like this, because <laughs> it's interesting. No, I think he does. I, 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 I've just kind of beat up. Um, the idea it's, it's, it's odd language of hiding in her heart that he, he thinks that these are, that it's a, it's, she, it's, it's somewhat unknown to her. Mm -hmm. She experienced these massively important things, yet she doesn't understand the totality of it. So she's digesting it, but she can't quite make sense of it. So it's like a mystery. It's something that's hidden, but then revealed, But then as time goes on, what she has hidden in her heart then becomes understood to her. God reveals the meaning of what she has hidden in her heart so that, you know, when she when when when, when she's experiencing all this, she's in awe. But yet this would explain why in Luke mm-hmm. and in really all four Gospels, not so much Mary and John, but all four Gospels show how Jesus family, they're slow to believe. Yep. And it's hard to read a text like Mark 3, where it says that Mary is ashamed of Jesus. So he, she goes to get him to, yeah. to to bring him back home because, quote, Mark is the only one to say this, because she and her kids, that is yeah. Jesus' half-brothers, believed that he was crazy. Yep. So it's how can, you know, how can Mary experience Luke 2 and yet not believe in him? Well, it's mm-hmm. because she didn't understand that gravity, the totality of yeah. this experience. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Uh, those are really good thoughts. Um, I, I want to, uh, we're running out of time here, but I wanted to hit also on the shepherds. It's an interesting note. You know, verse 20 says, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And, mm. and here's, here's, here's what um, is fascinating to me. Think about the timeline. So this happens. And then it's like everything goes radio silent for almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. Right? They Mm -hmm. have this experience where the angels appear to them and announce, here he is. This is the one. This is the Messiah. And then it's like silence. What's happening? Where'd he go? What happened to him? Did, Did God's plan just disappear? And then... You know, suddenly you have John the Baptist, you know, announcing in the wilderness, not too far away from Bethlehem. There's a guy coming greater than me, and mm-hmm. he's the one. Mm-hmm. And, but just to think about what must have gone through those shepherds' heads in, in the months and day, uh, months and, and years after this, like, wh- what happened to that kid? Like, what, like, what, where'd he go? Why, why don't we hear more about him? And then, you know, he bursts onto the scene at John when John baptizes him, and John's like, "Here he is. This is right. the guy." Right, right. You got to wonder too, you know, because they're they're laying a foundation for his arrival. What's fascinating, mm-hmm. and I don't know if it's connected to this, but we you get this more so 
in Mark's gospel. I can't remember here in Luke, but uh, when John announces his baptism, it says that all of Jerusalem in Judea came out mm-hmm. to see him and to be baptized by him. Like there was an immediate yeah. response to yep. John's baptism. So you got to wonder if maybe this is part of the reason why there was such a response 30 years later is because the message that the mm-hmm. um, shepherds had proclaimed, it had been yeah. disseminated, it had been memorized, it had been... You know, people were believing in it, trusting in it, just yep. kind of waiting for it. And then now once John the Baptist is on the scene, then they mm-hmm. respond to it. So, it, you know, it's we don't have a text that says that. We're just trying to put yep. the pieces together. But I think it's a yep. very interesting and not it's it's a very possible, if not probable, uh, connection be- between them. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, Ben, as we kind of wrap up here, um, any particular encouragement or advice or exhortation you want to give? Uh, I know we have pastors who listen to us uh, as they think about preaching a text like this or uh, using this in uh, whether it's a Christmas Eve service or Christmas morning or whatever it might be this year. Um, anything in particular that you want to encourage them to pay attention to uh, or to uh, to hit on? Uh, just what I've really already said that Jesus is both the son of David and the Lord of David and Mm -hmm. that Jesus, he has, he, he is mighty to save and he's, and he is intent on gaining the victory over sin and the devil. And he is a, Mm -hmm. he is a warrior. He's depicted here as a warrior, you don't get all that much sacrificial language here. That'll come. That's not a dominant thread for Luke. Instead, what you get here is that of a King and that of a warrior. And I think you, I mean, yes, of course, both are in mind, Both the sacrificial and warrior angles are in mind, but what's typically talked about in Luke two is this Jesus humility, which is, I mean, this is hugely into Jesus humility, but Mm -hmm. he is a King and he's a strong King and he yeah. is the Lord of the nations, and he's Lord over Caesar Augustus. And even though Caesar Augustus has turned to dirt, Jesus is still reigning on his throne. So those are the kinds of ideas that if I were the, mm-hmm. to preach a series on this, I would make those ideas very clear and plain to people. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, I would probably just add on to that, uh, kind of echoing what I said earlier in terms of looking at the different responses we see portrayed in the text as well. We see Mary's response. You see the shepherd's response. Um, and I think those are put there as uh, they're, they're intended to be model responses that mm. we should be uh, like Mary in terms of pondering, treasuring these things in our hearts, pondering them. We should be like the shepherds glorifying God for his uh, act to finally uh, intervene in human history and bring salvation. And so, um, and I also think, too, this is an opportunity if you're preaching in a context where you're going to have non-believers to help expand uh, people's picture of Jesus, because this is such a well-known story in one sense that hitting it from some of these angles that we've tried to ex- to explain today might shed some new light on mm. this is more than just a cute little story about a baby who's born and he's kind of important, like all the different angles of the titles given to him and the proclamation of peace and the fact that this is a form of an invasion into this fallen world, you know, all those sorts of realities might 
help shed some new light and raise people's ideas of Jesus is a much bigger deal than I kind of gave him credit for. Mm. You know, you know, Matt, that really feeds into the purpose of Luke's gospel. Luke says mm-hmm. that he wrote this gospel so that you, that is Theophilus and the readers, may yeah. know the certainty of the things you have been taught. You know, we all, even unbelievers, are somewhat familiar with Luke too. Mm-hmm. But those of us who doubt, those of us who struggle in our faith, you know what we need to do? We need to spend more time reading through the Gospels in yeah. learning about Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection. Because when we do, many, not all, but many of those doubts will simply mm-hmm. disappear because we will be convinced of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and we will then respond in faith. Absolutely. That's a good That's a good note to close it on. So, um. We are grateful that you have joined us on the Biblical Theology Briefing Podcast, and we hope that our discussion of Luke 2 uh, has encouraged your own spiritual life, has been a blessing to you, and um, as we wrap up, we want to say simply Merry Christmas. We are grateful for you listening, and thanks for joining us, and we look forward to being with you again on the Biblical Theology Briefing Podcast.